Well, this is what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Can any kid here tell me what that means? Very good. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, this is a, a time, a season of true victory. Victory that the, that's changed the world forever. Here we are 2,000 plus years later. We're sitting here worshiping Jesus because of what he's done, uh, done for us in truly dramatic fashion. So I'm going to pull out of the series this morning that I've been in and talking about how awesome our God is. And we're going to look at uh, these next two Sundays. This is going to be Palm Sunday, the victory of Jesus. And then next Sunday, the grand victory of Jesus in the, the resurrection. So I love, I, I truly do love this time of year. I love it for so many reasons. Um, because all of creation shouts out the glorious praises of God and anticipated from the very beginning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we go through the season of death in winter, and we come into the season of spring, and everything springs out of the dead ground, and the, the leaves begin to bud, and they flower, and the grass, and the, and, and the, you know, the tulips, and the irises, and, and all the various different flowers, and the, and the smell in the air changes, the days get longer, the sun starts to poke out more, and it just is a really a, a wonderful time on so many levels uh, because this is a season of new birth, resurrection life. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time this morning. Father, we are so incredibly thankful to you because you have loved us, loved us in a most profound way where you gave your only begotten son for us. And we're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you so willingly submitted yourself to the Father to the point of death, death on a cross. There's so much to this glorious, glorious truth that I just ask, Father, this morning that you would help us all to really grasp and understand and see your love, see your goodness, see the power and the victory of Jesus, that we might, we might believe it and give our lives for it. Work in our hearts now, we ask in Christ. Amen. According to one scholar, it was common practice in the ancient world to welcome home a king or a war hero by laying out a path of branches for him to ride slash walk on. Similar to rolling out the red carpet in English-speaking countries. Going all the way back to the time of Solomon... We can see this was something, kings riding in for their inauguration was something that they did way back then, hundreds of years before Jesus. 1 Kings one thirty three says, And the king, speaking of David, said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And this is where he was going to be inaugurated and crowned as king. He rides in on this mule. In the Jewish book of Maccabees, 2 Maccabees 10, 6-8, it says, They now carried boughs and green branches and palms for him that had given them good success. Here it was talking about the Maccabean revolt. And where uh, the, the family that the Maccabeans, the, this family that, that actually brought liberation to Israel, they, as they, they were war heroes, and this is what they did. They laid down palm branches for them. 
So as we can see, this laying down of, an, or slash waving of palm branches, both of them, was a recognized practice to indicate what? Yeah, this is, this is a big deal. This is the, you, either this is one, uh, a war hero, someone who's, whose conquest is so magnificent that the people actually end up worshiping this person, or this is the inauguration of a king, which is actually somewhat strange and ironic given all that's happened and, and given who Jesus is. Because in the case of Jesus, we know we know from Scripture, especially in Matthew 21 and, and also in John, John uh, 12, that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Which prophecy? Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years earlier, the prophet declared, told Israel, told Jerusalem to rejoice, because coming to you is going to be your king, and he's going to come on the foal of a donkey to you. So Jesus is going to ride into the city on this colt. And at this point, the vast majority of the people, a large majority are starting to believe that Jesus is Messiah. And one of the big events that really tripped this was what happened with Lazarus. Lazarus was dead in the grave for three days, and, and the people knew it. And, and the people were gathering, and people are starting to head to Jerusalem. Do you know why they're starting to head to Jerusalem at this time? Why there's, there's myriads and thousands and perhaps millions of people at Jerusalem at this right at this time? Because this is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which... You know, it starts, starts today and goes all the way till next week, this next weekend. But Passover is on Friday, which we call now Good Friday. Passover, and then after Passover on that Sunday begins the Feast of Weeks. So here we have the, this is the one of the main feasts of the three big feasts in the Jewish calendar where you, everybody heads to Jerusalem. This is like big time party, big time event in Jerusalem. There's going to be a lot of barbecuing. <laughs> in the Gospel of John, in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, On account of Lazarus and his being raised from the dead, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So on the account of what happened to Lazarus, they saw what happened, and what are they thinking? Unbelievable. Who can raise people from the dead? Who can say, come for Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth? Who can say that? Nobody but God. They know God is the only one who raises people from the dead. No, no man can do this. God can only do this. And then in verse 12, it says this of John chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, as I just explained, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This vast multitude is declaring that he is 
the king of Israel. So he's coming in as the king of Israel, which is pretty significant given the fact that Jesus shows no sign of being a king other, other than this event. If you looked at the way Jesus dressed, if you, you looked at where Jesus lived, if you look at what he comes from, if you look at all the aspects of his life, he's showing nothing that appears on the surface as kingly. It's more servant-oriented. He's serving, helping, giving, blessing, restoring. He's healing. He's casting out demons. So, But he's, he's cloaked. His manifestations of his power and his glory start... They peek out as you see, like, like, who is this guy that just raised Lazarus from the dead? But here they believe, we can tell that Jesus is the promised king. They're starting to believe. As hard as it is to look at him and see what you see in his actions, he's got to be. They start to believe. In Matthew, beginning at verse 9, Matthew chapter 12, uh, 21, it says, the crowds went before him, and the ones that followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna. Do you realize what they're saying? Hosanna to the son of David, the promised one. He's the king, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Who is this? Who could this be? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, another head scratcher. <laughs> Who is this? Who is this? How could, what's happening? This is like the inauguration of a king. What's happening? Who is this? This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the prophet. You know, this prophet who's wandering around, has no place to lay his head. He sleeps under the stars. <clears throat> it's a big moment. You know, this is a huge moment in Israel because for hundreds of years, they've been waiting for the son of David God had promised. The one who would sit on David's throne forever. Remember how it's recorded in 2 Samuel seven twelve. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Then down in verse 16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So now, here it is. The one promised has arrived. Hosanna to the son of David. They actually believe that this, this, is, this is it. This is Messiah. Victory. This is the time of victory. They're probably thinking, this is unbelievable. Can you imagine we're going to receive the kingdom? The, you know, of which the glory of Solomon's kingdom was only a type and a shadow. This is going to be the reality. So long, Romans. Their oppression under the Romans, no more. They will be given the land once again. They will experience the everlasting kingdom. And yet, they had no idea what it means that God in man is king. They don't understand. They don't understand the full picture. They have no idea what God must do to truly free his people. The Romans weren't their greatest problem. Right here was. Right here was. Just like in every person's here. You know, oppressive of, oppression of governments is not the problem. 
This is the problem. It's us, and it's in us. And so often, we always think of like, we, we would do so much better. Things would be so much better if the things around us, the circumstances around us were changed, different. No, no, you would do so much better if this was changed. And your circumstances could remain the same. The real, the true thing that needs to be changed is the heart of man. You know, the Jews were just, they were utterly and completely confused by Jesus, as you can understand. Because in five days from this Palm Sunday, Jesus is going to be taken by his own people. These, all these people gather together and they're praising and worshiping him as Messiah. And five days later, something radically shifts and changes. It's odd. His own people take him. They falsely accuse him. He's abandoned by all his followers. He's beaten by the Romans. And then they hang him on one of their crosses with a sign above his head, King of the Jews. What? Who's this man who the people had just praised? Lauded him as the King of Israel. And now he's hanging on a cross? Five days later! Five days later, he's hanging on a cross. He just finished, he's coming today, he's riding into the city on this colt with his inauguration, every laying their clothes down and palm branches and so rejoicing and praising God for the Messiah has arrived, the King of Israel is here. And it's just mind-blowing that five days later, they're hanging him on a cross and above his head says the King of the Jews. What happened? The world was being turned up down, upside down and nobody really could figure out what was going on. Who is this man? But you know what's crazy? Jesus shows his kingly power even in his death. He can't help it. It just starts spurting out. It's like someone who's just so full of power and glory that you know you, he's trying to contain it and it just kind of goes, boop, boop, boop. it pops out all over the place. You're just seeing this manifestation of power and and just this kingly reign and rule over things. He just finished doing what he does to Lazarus. And, and then you see him, like the way he, he, he speaks to demons and to diseases and afflictions and ailments. And everybody, they're obeying his very word. And then listen to this. In his death, death listen to Matthew chapter 27, where even as he's dying and, and he dies, crazy things are happening. Beginning at verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up, his, uh, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And it doesn't say here in Matthew's text, but, text, but it also went dark. There's an earthquake. It's black. The temple's being wrecked. <laughs> the temple curtain split in two. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said this, Truly, truly, this is the Son of God. When they see what's going on, they're like, this is unbelievable. Do you have goosebumps right now? 
<laughs> Are you like a little bit afraid right now? Because even in this, this man's death, who is this man? He dies and, the, and all the, the earth is convulsing. The graves are cracking open and people are sprouting to life. Now that's power. That's awesome glory. And he's hanging there containing it all because with one word, he could, with one word, he could destroy heaven and earth. <laughs> but he's containing it. And even in his containment of it, it's poking out and it's blasting everywhere. He's so full of glory and power. Jesus truly is the promised king. But something quite different than they expected is happening. And because even though they didn't know this yet, Jesus truly, Jesus reigns over heaven and earth. One of the things that Israel failed to realize about the coming of Messiah was the extent of his reign and rule. The people wanted to be out from the, under the reign and rule of the Romans at this time, their oppressive government. And they wanted to be living under the glorious reign of the David's son. But this was no David. He was so much more beyond David. And, and the reign of Messiah was going to be way beyond some earthly kingdom. Way beyond that. Jesus was headed to sit on a throne they had no idea about. He, there was a throne he was going to take, and it was going to be an eternal throne, but they had no idea the passageway to it, and they had no idea the, the, the gravity and the grandeur of it. In Matthew 28, Jesus reveals to them the extent of his reign and rule and his authority when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after his resurrection. And this is a ba- the basis of the Great Commission, therefore go into all the world, is because he, has a, he owns it all. And to get a sense of what Jesus' throne and glory looks like, I'm just going to quickly turn to Revelation chapter 2, where John, or chapter 1, gets a sense of his, uh, of his glory, and then in Revelation 4, where we see the throne. Here's, here's this reign and rule of Jesus. Here's the throne he's truly going to get. Not the throne on earth, not David's throne, but so much greater, so much more glorious. And just to get in a sense of who is this king, Revelation chapter 1, 16, where John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, it says, and he has this vision. And beginning at verse 16, following, it says, his face, talking about Jesus, he has a vision of him. His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. I was dead, and now I am alive. Fear not, for I am the king, and I have the keys to death in Hades. I am the one who holds the lockbox. I am the one who holds the keys to the ones who are in in death, and the one who can release death. They're mine. The one who can say, come up from the grave, and they all come up from the grave, He's the one who can say that because he holds the keys to it. He has full authority now. All authority in heaven and earth has truly been given to him. And then if you look at Revelation chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, we start to see, well, what's his throne like? What is this throne like? 
speaks of it in this way. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And then if you jump down to verse 8, It says, and the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they they existed and were created. Now that's the throne that Jesus got. Now that's not the throne that Israel is thinking Jesus is going to get. They thought he was going to take over David's throne. Yeah, David's throne. So it's swallowed up. And it was just a type and a picture and a little itty-bitty shadow of what is to come. The glorious nature of Jesus' reign and rule is heaven and earth, all things over all things. Yet one of the things we struggle with when we think about the extent of Jesus' reign and rule is what we see with our eyes. Because today we live in a world we see with our eyes things that seem to contradict what we think is true about Jesus reigning and ruling. If Jesus were on his throne, wouldn't there be peace Wouldn't there be protection? Wouldn't there be prosperity over all the earth? Wouldn't suffering, persecution, and horrific things that happen on this earth be over? Wouldn't we, wouldn't what we see today, all the evil and destruction, wouldn't that be done with? I mean, if Jesus is on his throne, why are, why is this stuff going on? It's a legitimate question. But it's, and it's because of this struggle, because Jesus is on his throne, but what we're seeing on earth, it created all, has created a lot of different interpretations of the scripture about the reign and rule of Jesus. And what exactly that means. Most people look at the world and all the evil in it, and they, they can't reconcile that with Jesus being on his throne. And so they make some, the, the doctrine seems to have to correspond to what we see, and he's, they say he's not really on his throne today. He's still awaiting to be seated on the throne. However, the way we reconcile this, the way we have to understand this, is not by trying to, not by trying to fit in what's going here and him not being on his throne and, and somehow thinking there's a, there's a weird tension that we have to reconcile. We just have to understand how things are working. Phase one and phase two. We have to understand what Jesus came to do phase one and what he's coming to do phase two. At his first coming, Jesus knows the priority is, is first and fundamentally spiritual. In the second coming, the priority there is physical. In this sense, Jesus knows that the fundamental issue and problem in this world is sin, death, and the devil. That's the fundamental. If you want to know what is the problem, what's the problem in this world? It's sin, 
It's death, and it's the devil. That's the problem. And if that doesn't get taken care of, it doesn't matter how much, how much uh, stuff you have on the outside. You've got corruption on the inside. So his primary objective when he comes as king is to deal with that fundamental issue of all humanity. And then, at his return, the resurrection of all things, where, where all things are made new. Everything physical. The earth is relieved of its curse completely. You know, do you realize that the power of Jesus, the reign and rule of Jesus, is the very reason why men, women, and children all around the world, when they come to know him and meet him, become completely different people. This is the most transformative thing that you can ever imagine. If you ever just want to read, read books, if, you're, if you need to be reminded of the transforming power of Jesus, read people's testimonies. People testify, I was a hater, I was a murderer, I was a lust bucket, I was a pervert, I was twisted, and I was demented. But I met Jesus, and he transformed my life. He forgave me, he cleansed me, he made me a whole new person. I, I had no concern for the things of God, now I love God, I want to go after God, I praise God, I want to serve God, I want to live for God. Totally different person, a different creature altogether. Jesus transforms in ways in the, that our eyes are looking and we see, we see, we see with our eyes and we, the person doesn't physically change. Like they don't, oh, you, you're actually, you know, you used to look so different. I mean, you'll, you'll see their eyes change. The light in their eyes change. They have a, a appearance change in that way, but they're still the same person. They're, but they're completely different. Jesus' reign and rule, the first phase is fundamentally the spiritual issues that needed to take place. That's what he's coming to take care of. So, And in the meantime, until he takes care of the curse of the earth, until he takes care of like the curse that's in our bodies, until he takes care of all this stuff physically, we have to, we have to suffer the afflictions of it. We ha- on this earth, while we live on this earth, do you realize that there's no pass? I'm now a Christian. Now I get the easy life. Wrong. It's probably going to get worse for you. Because now your Heavenly Father's interested, desperately interested in you and growing up and maturing and your faith strengthening and you trusting Him more and more. And He realizes that He has to work on you your whole life and you suffering and affliction and pain and all this stuff to work out of you all the garbage. So many Christians find after they become a Christian, they get attacked way harder from the, from the evil one. They find their life is way more difficult. They got way more struggles and way more complications. But yet, as they turn to the Lord and they find their strength in the Lord, they have way more joy, way more fulfillment, way more purpose, way more meaning. And then they have the hope of glory. So it's a, it makes a huge and massive difference. But we're not physically seeing it. But we, there's, there's, a, there's a thing going on in the world right now. And Jesus is gaining the victory. He's reigning and ruling. And he's working in the hearts and lives of people all around us. Now, I don't, in saying all this, I don't mean to say that there's no physical difference. There absolutely is. Because what happens when you change the person, that person changes their actions. What, what what's happens in here comes out here. 
It comes out in the way you do things, the way you work, the way you, the way you care for your family, the, you know, the way you recreate, the way you do what you do. You change. Everything changes. The things you build, the things you touch, the things you work on change. So it has a manifestation. It definitely manifests. And this manifestation grows and grows and grows. But the primary thing that Jesus is, is coming to affect is the heart, the spiritual condition. Because no matter what we do with our hands in this world, death and decay until the resurrection is a, is a serious part of it. Is there one thing you've ever laid your hands to? Is there one thing you possess? Is there one thing that is just undecayable? No, everything, your house, your home, your car, your, your body, your bike, everything is decaying. And so we long for the resurrection. We long for the resurrection, but in the meantime, we keep, we keep working, we keep plowing, we, we keep pressing forward knowing this great and glorious day is coming and Jesus is reigning and ruling and he is actually doing an effective work in people's lives. Tra- transformative. Here's one thing, the last thing I want us to, to, to see and understand in all of this is that when you understand the grand victory of Jesus and you realize how glorious his reign and rule is and you, and you understand the promises and you know that Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and the nations are his, they are his inheritance. You know that the, that the word of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as it says, says in Isaiah 11, 9. That you, and you know these promises. You know and you read Isaiah and you talk about what's going to happen under the reign and rule of Messiah. And you know that there's victory is ours. We win. Jesus conquers. And it's just a matter of time. And it's happening. Often, we misunderstand how Jesus is going to gain the victory because of this. But this is what we have to understand. Jesus is going to accomplish his victory through the cross. The biggest stumbling block for the Jews was the cross. The greatest bit of foolishness for the Greeks was the cross. Yet it is the wisdom of God that confounds the world and ultimately will conquer the world. It isn't uncommon for Christians who get really excited about the victory of the gospel the victory of Jesus and his kingdom to start trying to lay hold of the handles of power, saying they're ours and not realizing, no, it's through the cross. The cross has got to be remembered. You have to see, the how did Jesus go to reign and rule? He goes into Jerusalem and it goes through the cross, through death and through resurrection. And it's no different for those who follow him. If you look at all of his, all of his, all of the apostles, the 12 apostles, every one of them, except for John, was martyred and put to death. Every one of them suffered greatly. Every one of them was falsely accused. Every one of them follow his path. Yet by the time they're all dead, a large portion of the world has heard the gospel and, and millions of people are following Jesus. It's powerful. The cross is powerful, but it's not the way of the world. It's, it confounds the world. It doesn't make sense. It's bizarre and strange. So, you know, we have to remember 
that it'll never, on this earth, on this earth, reformation, transformation, the victory of Jesus and the gospel will never happen because we get active in politics and policy making and protesting. It will only happen through the cross. We lay down our lives for the sake of the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and amazing things happen. Because the only hope for this world is a spiritual operation that can only happen through the gospel. You take somebody's Who's, who's walks, who's dead in their de- trespasses and sins. Somebody who's like under the, the dominion and reign and rule of, the, of Satan. Somebody who's, who's bound in death. I don't care what kind of law, what kind of uh, in, in, in policy you put over that person and try to force them into. They will not obey it. The heart can't obey it. It hates it. It rebels it. There's no hope in that at all. None. The only hope is that Jesus would set them free. The only hope is that they would be transformed by the gospel, that they'd hear, and upon hearing they would believe, and upon believing that the Spirit would come and transform their lives and make them brand new creatures. And that now they don't need laws and policies. They're like, God, please, I want to obey your word. I want, I want to do what you want me to do. Their, their conscience is renewed. And, and, and they, they're different creatures, and they act differently. What this world needs is far less policy makers and far more preachers. But not just preachers, preachers who are willing to die for the gospel. That's what we need. We need people who are willing to die. We need the people who are willing to go about like Jesus, who went into the world ministering to the lost, giving himself away, proclaiming the good news, and was willing to be offered up by that same world. And the reason why we're so uninvolved, I believe, there's a reason why we're so unengaged, the reason why we're so ineffective, the reason why I think the church in America is so anemic in so many ways, is because of one, the love of personal comfort, and all the blessings of God, and two, fear of man. We don't like to do anything that takes us out of our comfort zone, typically. And we are afraid of what others might think of us, or say about us, or do to us. And because of these two things, we lay low. We, we have our faith lay low, we lay low, and we just kind of go about life lay low. Because if I, if I get too involved or too engaged and I, and I put myself out there, well, all the unknowns can happen. And who wants that? That's discomfort. Oh man, and then I could, I could find myself in, in strange in situations that I don't really like too much, and who wants that? Nobody wants that. I don't want that. And I don't want to cause an offense. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything that would make people not like me. I don't want to do anything that like might, you know, have people say things against me that aren't true. I wouldn't want to do any of that stuff. And not only that, I'll tell you what, it's pretty good being comfortable. You know, having plenty, food, drink, friends, Parties, 
Living comfortably, that's where it's at. And so we know that if, if we put ourselves out there, if you, if you really, if you really live engaged in the world, willing to sacrifice yourself for the world, you know there's a cost involved. And many of us do not like that cost. Yet let's be reminded by the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, only those who are willing to lose their lives seeking Jesus' glory are the ones who will find it. And those who are trying to preserve their life and the comforts of it will ironically lose it. There's no vibrant life there. There's no vibrant life trying to seek and preserve your own self. When you're busy trying to protect self, one of the things that God robs from you is vibrant, joy-filled life. There's no life there. You lose life trying to guard and protect it yourself. It's, it's actually a very ironic thing. Somebody who's died to themselves, the self, and are willing, they've already committed themselves. There's like, there's, they're living as good as dead. They fully live. They put it out there. People who are always protecting and preserving and trying to like make sure everybody thinks well of them and is always concerned about themselves and about their reputation, about their image, about what people are saying, about, about me, 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 me. They, they live trapped and ensnared and in a bondage and they have no life. All you have to do is see somebody. You know, you watch somebody, it's almost like they, you, here's an expression we use. They're so comfortable in their own skin. They just live so freely. They just live so openly. They're just so out there. They don't seem to care what anybody else thinks. And we're jealous of it because we know in our hearts, I live my life protecting, preserving, guarding, defending, always concerned what others might think. Right? This is what we do. And what's just striking to me is, is how much we love comfort and how much we fear the disapproval of others. And therefore, it's almost like we're trapped and ensnared and we really can't live the life that we're called to live. Do you realize that when Christians have already kind of reconciled the, themselves as dead, have already kind of like, come to that place where they surrender everything to God and even their own lives and the protection of it, it really doesn't matter to them. The ones who are just so kind of abandoned to God and to Jesus, they have an incredible impact on the world. And God uses it mightily. Even think, think of the Apostle Paul. This is why he said in Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Just think of that. Let that phrase stand out to you for a moment. If not strange or odd. Let me repeat this. This is like, you should be going, what? He says, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
The mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here's a man who's like, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul had dealt with himself before God and said, here I am, all of me for you. You gave all of yourself to me and have loved me in a way that I can't comprehend. I give all of myself to you. And I lay, he labors and as he toils and he, and, he, and, and this is that expression that I, I love how John Piper addressed it. When he says that phrase, he says, I fill up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. You say, oh, what? What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? And I really do appreciate how John Piper exegeted this and explained it because he, it really, I think, makes a lot of sense. He says, there is absolutely nothing, nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ, nothing for our salvation. Nothing. However, what was lacking was a visible, personal demonstration for the world. A lot of people can't. The only place they see the love of Christ are through our own afflictions and us dealing with it. They, they, see, they see our love for God, our love for Jesus, our love for others. And, and the, so the only, like Piper said, the only thing missing, like Jesus has done it all, all the salvific all the salvific work is completed. However, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ are a present-day, real-time demonstration. So when you see it, you're confounded by it. When you see a Christian suffer and love God and love others, even in the midst of their suffering and in their afflictions, and they're, and they're actually, they suffer afflictions for the sake of others, they are seeing the love of God in Christ Jesus. They're seeing a demonstration of it. And it's powerful and effective. When the world sees our willingness to suffer for the name of Jesus and for them, they see the love of Jesus. And it has a powerful effect. And this is precisely how Jesus is going to gain the victory. It is going to be through a cross, not through a crown. Remember that. And when I say crown, I mean like the authority, the, the principalities, the powers, the, the ones who are in power. It's never be through power, never be through the crown, the kingly crown. It's going to be through the cross. That's how Jesus is going to gain the victory. So as we go from here today, may we go as victors. Those who know that Jesus won, it's finished. It's completed. He gained the victory. He is the victor. He rides into the city and he's the king, the reigning king of heaven and earth. He's loved him, loved us so much. He, he gave himself for us and poured himself out for us. And so those of us, who've received such great love, who saw our king, our king manifested the way of victory, he says, come and follow me. Follow me to the way of victory. Follow me. But Jesus, that's going to cost me everything. You better believe it. You better believe it. But you gain a hundredfold. 
This is what living is. Living is, is like walking into dying, being reconciling death, and, and knowing that death has no longer any sting or victory. Death isn't something to fear. It's not something that you fear anymore. You should be able to boldly walk into it knowing it's conquered. That's the whole point. And this is why those who believe, those who see Jesus, and they see the way of victory, they follow He's shown that that way is truly the way of living. That way is the way of glory. That way is the way of eternal blessing and goodness. What we do is just often just so wrong-headed. It's not the way of glory. It's not the way of victory. It's the way of self-protection and self-preservation, which is totally contrary to the nature of God. God sacrifices continually, lays down His life. That's the nature of God, to give and to love and to serve. And, and we, what we're all trying to do is trying to preserve. Protect self. Preserve self. Not forget self. Self, you stink. Get out of the way. Because you have to battle with yourself, your ego, and you have to put, like Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Daily. And follow me. He said daily for a reason. Because when you wake up tomorrow morning, you've got to deal with yourself. Self-love, self-protection, self-comfort. Your self is always saying, no, no, don't do that, Dean. Don't, Dean, they might say something about you. And not only that, not only am I self-concerned about that, the enemy, <laughs> he promotes that. He's constantly whispering, trying to get me to protect and preserve self instead of putting self out there, dying to self for the good of others. You think of your homes and your families. You think of your jobs and your work. You think of everything, every, every relationship that you have. Does death come when you lay down yourself and die to self? No, life comes. I'll tell you when death comes is when you're selfish. You want to see relationships go south? Just start protecting self. Just start making sure self is number one. And it'll destroy all the relationships around you. To have good, vital relationships with people requires that you lay down yourself and die. We can't be trying to protect and preserve our life and hide in the shadows, hoping that nobody will harm or hurt us. And I think so so many in the church have done that, thinking, oh, that's that's the way of life. That's the way. Well, just I'll just just... I won't say anything. I won't do anything. I just, I'm just concerned about everything just being nice and pretty. That's the way of death. It's the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. We gotta learn in, in the right and proper sense to hate that selfishness. And put ourselves out there and just be willing to die. Because until you're willing to die, you don't know what it's like to live. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus came and he gained the victory and he's going to win. But it's only going to be through the cross. Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to go out there and put it on the line and die to yourself so that everybody around you might live? That's the question that we all must ask every single morning. 
Am I willing to die that my family might live? Am I willing to die that my neighbors might live? Am I willing to die that my coworkers might live? Am I willing to die that this world might live? And I hope it's, oh yeah, you better believe it. Why? Because my Lord died and he lives. That's the only way of living. Sign me up. Amen.